Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst, except for once a month when we cover horror adjacent movies uh, like today. My name is Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you so much for listening to us today. I know it might seem like, didn't we just do a horror adjacent episode? And you would be right. Um, Timing is odd with uh, when we did the February bonus episode and we took an impromptu week off in March. But here we are, and I'm very excited for today. Yeah, we're watching a movie that uh, Sarah and I have both seen before. It was selected by our patrons over on Patreon. Uh, I think it won the poll by a large margin. And the poll for April's Horror Adjacent movie is a little tighter Mm -hmm. um but of course patrons of any level are able to vote so if you're interested to check that out you can go to patreon.com slash scream podcast now ben what did our lovely patrons vote for us today they chose them i see uh them is a great movie i am pretty excited yeah them is the title of this film uh it is from 1954 So we're winding back the clock a little bit in comparison to where we are on the main show. It is one of the first atomic monster movies. It is the first giant insect movie. And I feel like, you know, in order to set the scene for them, we kind of need to remind our listeners kind of like what the state of, you know, the atomic panic in the 1950s was like in 1954, which I feel like is, you know, almost like kind of the height of it. Yeah, I think you could say that. Um, So for context around this context setting, (laughs) I went into a lot of detail about uh, the atomic age uh, for 1954 when we covered Gojira Mm -hmm. uh, in episode 172. Now Gojira, you know, I came out in 1954 in Japan in November them came out in june in america in yeah that and, same year and godzilla wouldn't come out in the u.s until 1956 correct so i just wanted to like put those two movies into context with each other mm-hmm. um in the gojira episode i talked specifically about the atomic age and atomic testing near japan and in the pacific particularly with that movie kind of opening with uh, a fictionalized version of the Lucky Dragon number no. 5 boat arriving to shore on which would have happened on March 1st 1954 as a result of the uh, Castle Bravo hydrogen bomb test at Bikini Atoll. I'm going to do a quick rundown of the atomic testing specifically on US soil from the Trinity project the very first one up to 1954 so basically up to uh, the castle tests in in terms of timeline. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I do love the ways that this show allows you to become uh, kind of like a little mini expert on like a very niche sliver of topic every once in a while. Yeah, I think it kind of freaks up my coworkers sometimes. <laughs> 
Because they'll like make an offhand comment and I'll be like, oh yeah, did you know shrews have venom? Right. And they'll be like, how the fuck do you know that? See our episode on the killer shrews. Yeah. Um, so let me take you back a little bit further to the Manhattan Project. It started in 1939. It was so named because it was based in Manhattan. It had a different name, but then they were like, Manhattan Project sounds cooler. <laughs> and it started in World War II. Uh, now, nuclear fission had been uh, discovered in 1938 in Nazi Germany, and there were concerns of the theoretical possibility of an atomic bomb. With that in mind, the U.S., Canada, and Britain formed the Manhattan Project to try to figure out, like, okay, well, the Nazis can't come up with the atomic bomb. We have to come up with it. So that arms race had already started way back at the beginnings. Now, they did research on things like uranium and plutonium, which uh, in doing this research, I learned that plutonium is actually man-made. Uh, uranium is natural, but mm-hmm. that was a f- neat discovery. And the very first detonation of an atomic bomb was in New Mexico and was codenamed Trinity. And this was in July 1945. It used an implosion-type detonator that basically, rather than, you know how a gun goes off and it has like this hammer that hits the bullet that ignites gunpowder that shoots the bullet forward, Mm -hmm. rather than some kind of detonation like that, the Trinity test, the Trinity bomb used um, this implosion thing where when it went off, many explosions went off inside the casing, which would then kickstart the fission of the uranium-plutonium mix. Mm. Um, And the reason they had to time it this way is because if the fission took too long before everything else went kablooey, the nuke would, quote, fizzle out. So it wouldn't reach its full potential. Mm. Using this detonator method, they were able to kind of best gauge how to time that nuclear fission explosion. Now, President Truman pushed for the Trinity test to go ahead in July 1945 to kind of time it to happen just before or during the Potsdam Conference because the Cold War was a brewing um, and Truman wanted to show the U.S. military power to Stalin at the conference. The next time that an atom bomb went off in the world was in August with the bombing of Japan. With Nagasaki, it was actually the same type of device as used in the Trinity test. Hiroshima had a a different kind of detonator test, but both were still atomic bombs. When doing the test at Trinity, because again, I'm going to focus on tests on U.S. soil, there was fallout expected. And so they had planned that like, okay, well, we'll test where everyone was sheltering. We'll test at the actual bomb site. But they did this poorly. They took a fallout test at the observation site kind of immediately after the blast. Mm. And it showed very little radiation, like point less than 0.1, which is like the daily maximum that you should have. Uh, So they were like, oh, sweet. Okay, this is fine. But they tested all that before the fallout cloud could even reach the observation site. Right. There was also um, a thermal updraft with the Trinity bomb that was higher than expected. And so the fallout 
actually fell outside of other planned test areas. Right. However, when they tested the crater, it was far more radioactive than anticipated because when the bomb went off in the middle of a desert, all that sand turned to radioactive glass, mm-hmm. which was then termed Trinitite, Trinity bomb, Trinitite. Um, it looks really cool, uh, but it's super hella radioactive. <laughs> There were lead-lined tanks that navigated up to the crater site to, you know, observe what was going on. And the tanks and the people in the tanks later tested for 13 to 15 Rontgens, like the level of radiation. The daily limit is 0.2. So a lot worse than anticipated. However, the heaviest hit area of fallout from the Trinity test was 30 miles out near the Chupadera Mesa. No one was there, but there was a ton of cattle there. And that cattle had burns and um, discolored fur, um, burns on their mouths from eating like uh, radioactive grass. It was bad news. Right. Now across New Mexico, there were other counties hit. uh, And you can see this years later in like the 70s and 80s and even 90s in particular with some of these People have done uh, research around cancer and cancer rates. Right. Um, now, this was the only test done in New Mexico, so you can tie it directly to Trinity and just high, high rates of, of cancer in neighboring counties. Back in 1945, uh, in August, Kodak Company, the film stock company, realized that there was some kind of testing going on in the States because they had cardboard that would ship their stock. And it was coming out all, like, weird colored. And they traced it back to a paper mill in Indiana who was using contaminated river water. Yeah, I've heard that story. Uh, I I got that story in film school. Yeah, so this paper mill using this contaminated river water made this cardboard that was used to ship Kodak. And Kodak actually had to keep this discovery under wraps Mm -hmm. because of, like, the classified nature of the tests but it did mean that the u.s government didn't tell companies like kodak that would make film or photo stock wouldn't tell them like where they were doing testing but they would just conveniently say like maybe you should get your materials from over that way right and not over this way now the next atomic testing was in the pacific islands with uh the crossroads test in 1946 And they tended to test in the Pacific Islands until the first Nevada test in 1951 called Ranger. And from that point forward, there's like an interesting divergence because 1951 onwards in the Pacific Islands, that was where they were testing hydrogen bombs. Whereas in Nevada, they continued to test the, uh, I'll say traditional, like uranium plutonium bombs. Mm. Particularly also with Nevada testing, um, from 1950, from 1951 onwards, it was kind of focused on like, I'll say troop maneuvers, but what I mean by that is like testing, can we shoot these atomic bombs with an artillery gun? Right. Um, targeted art, like targeted nuclear strikes rather than like it being detonated underground, having it come from an airplane. Right. Um, they were doing testing for like, how much yield can we actually get with different, detonation gadgets um or 
I think Detonator. Detonator, yes, but the first one was called, literally called The Gadget. Okay. So that's, I think that's where that came into my head. Got it. Now, these tests that would be going on, that was like the broader code name, but they had multiple tests within each code name. And the one that I think is best to call attention to that had the most tests in Nevada is 1953's Upshot Not Whole. Okay. This was where they were testing firing from ground artillery. And in total, they did 11 tests as part of that maneuver. Some of those tests just kept fizzling out or they would underperform. So they wouldn't totally fizzle out, but the timing of detonation just clearly wasn't lining up. And you can see a direct line from those results of like, man, we're just not doing this. We just need to pump more and more materials into this bomb to try to get the best result. A direct line from that thinking to the overperforming Castle Bravo test. Right. That led to everything with Japan because Castle Bravo overperformed by 250%. Yes. Yeah, it was huge. Yeah. So... I feel like for maybe our listeners, anyone who listens to this show who isn't super familiar with U.S. geography, I just kind of want to say like Nevada, where they were doing most of these tests, is mostly a desert. Yes. Um, which I, you know, is why it got picked. It's also mostly federal land, which I'm sure also contributed. But like, you know, there are people who live there. There's Las Vegas, but there's also like a lot of uh, Native American reservations there, like the Navajo Nation mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And I just, you know, think about how probably the U.S. government didn't really care. Yes, but also they didn't really care about the fallout as well. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the fallout drifted downwind and headed into places like Utah. Mm. Um, and so there are people who through 70s, 80s, 90s were coming forward with like these horrendous cancer rates to the point where they were calling themselves the downwinders. Oh, wow. On the one hand, I'm like hesitant to say, well, the government didn't care because maybe they didn't know. There's evidence that they did know and then just didn't say anything. And it's that lack of action that people point to for, see, they didn't care. Um, I think it's also worthwhile to characterize it as they cared about something else instead, which right. was building a military power because of the fears and threat of the, the Cold War. I'm not saying that justifies it. I right. just think it's useful to understand if they didn't care about that, then what did they care about? And trying to understand that because it, you can see a line between what does the government care about mm. and how that continues into their priorities into the Korean War, into the Vietnam War, all the way up to 2023 and where concerns are versus not. Because um, context, and that's what we're all about here. Yeah, absolutely. So by 1954, um, including the castle tests in the Pacific, they saw six operations with a total of 20 tests or detonations, whereas in the U.S. they saw five operations, including Trinity, with 32 tests. Mm. So not to discount the devastation of the tests in the Pacific, 
um, and the impact that that has on um, particularly Japan's psyche in 1954. But the U.S. had many more detonations, a lot more spread of that fallout as a result. Now, these tests were overseen by the Atomic Energy Commission. Right. And so people would know that the government is interested in atomic energy. It's not a hidden secret, while those tests might have been. Mm -hmm. Now, these tests, as I said, were to gauge firing mechanisms um, or different internal material ratios, and it was also to observe that radiation and fallout trends um, to better understand how contamination behaved, which is also why I'm like, I don't think the government didn't care about the fallout because they were directly studying where it fell. Right, yeah. But it's like... Um, they just didn't do anything about it. Right, yeah, which is kind of the the bigger problem. Yes. Because um, you could at least be like, you know, hey, so according to our science that we did, uh, you guys all probably are at high risk for cancer. Let's, you know, do these things to try and help you guys out or whatever. But yeah, like, I feel like people knew the government was doing atomic bomb tests in Nevada. It was just like, you don't know when or where or like what exactly are they testing this time in terms of all that stuff about yield and so on. It's like, you know that it's happening, but you don't know the deets. Exactly. Yeah. As you said, even by the Trinity test, the public was very aware of the possibility of atomic bombs um, and uh, the possibility of using nuclear energy on like a not bomb aspect yeah, like of power it. plants and stuff. Yeah. Um, even before the Trinity test, people were describing the 20th century as the radium age. Interestingly, H.G. Wells coined the atomic bomb phrase in his 1914 novel, The World Set Free. Um, and of course, already, even before the Trinity test, many, many pulp magazines and comics were using radioactive monsters, etc. But it really hammered home that, oh, no, this is a reality mm -hmm. when the bomb went off, when it was used so publicly in Japan, um, and this kind of open secret that things are being tested where, quote-unquote, no one lives. Right. I also mentioned with the Trinity test that you can see the beginnings of the Cold War mm -hmm. um, way back even then. Um, so in 1954, there is still that um, concern that it it hasn't reached like 1959 levels. Mm. Um, and the Cold War really heightens more in the 60s. But it's still here. It's still present. Um, you can even look at like 1951's The Thing to right. see that it is present in people's minds. Yeah. It's um, what's motivating a lot of this. Absolutely. Uh, so that like existential threat ever increasing but at this point because we're still like early into these tests um there's still a in the public consciousness like a wonder at harnessing this power right. um like look at what we were able to achieve by like exerting our power over nature um that kind of like atomic age futurism mm -hmm. it, it's still very much there rather than like oh god this will be the death of us all in terms of the wider consciousness. Right. Ironically, it wouldn't be until the 1960s that we would see tests more for, quote unquote, peaceful uses. Mm. Um, though you could argue that those tests were to continue putting ourselves in the mind of Russia being like, see, we're still doing tests. So not maybe not necessarily peaceful. 
But yeah, that's where 1954 in America we are with atomic energy, atomic bombs, and fallout. It's all kind of like amorphous. The danger of fallout is present, um, but they are seeing it more specifically in animals like those cows. There were cases in 1953 of dead or deformed sheep, the radioactive grass, and like burned mouths, and kind of like weird birth rates and infertilities in animals, but nothing really documenting it in people as of yet. Yeah, I feel like there was this sense that, you know, the U.S. government couldn't own up to being the cause of these like rising cancer rates and things like that from the fallout, even though it was obvious, because we're still in an era where the idea that the U.S. government is harming its own citizens is an idea that the government is trying to, you know, not encourage, Mm -hmm. right? Like this idea that, you know, the government would do anything that would harm its own people is, would be, you know, wild. Now, obviously there's plenty of marginalized peoples in the 1950s in America who know full well that the government is out to harm them, but I'm talking about like mainstream perception and culture, right? Yeah. You don't see that until 60s counterculture. Yeah. Really into the 70s. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, there's all kinds of things, uh, that came out of these tests. Like one thing we mentioned on the show a lot, because it touches a lot of people's lives was like the way that, um, the John Wayne movie, the conqueror, which was shot in Nevada. Most of the people involved with making that movie ended up getting cancer Mm -hmm. because they were shooting downwind of atomic tests that they didn't know were happening. Right. Where it's like, you know, the government could have been like, Hey guys, don't shoot there that weekend we're testing some bombs but you know you needed to be secret about everything right yeah so that brings us to them and them uh was an idea that came from uh george washington yates the original writer he wrote a a kind of story treatment Mm. and the genesis of this idea was you know the idea of atomic testing the idea of these like mutated animals and like what radiation could do um and then the idea that ants are the only species aside from man to plan and wage war i don't know if that's accurate but i do know that it's like a common sort of um farm fact like like you know like a common like kind of folkloric fact that people pass around um so the idea was like well if ants were you know not the size of ants they would actually be like a major threat to humanity because they're aggressive and they can plan and they can build structures and you know etc cetera, etc cetera. i think also typically speaking um in pop culture ants are kind of understood as having like a hive mind, um, which isn't a real thing, but that's like an understanding of ants that renders them very good analogs for communism. Yes. They are relentless in what they are trying to achieve. But also this idea that like, there's no such thing as like an individual ant, right? Yeah. Ants work together as a colony to achieve their goals and the individual doesn't matter. Like the CGI movie ants with a Z from DreamWorks, uh, which was like a kind of a, a weird, like anti-communism 
um, fable, despite it coming out in the late nineties. So, you know, I think these are all the ideas that are sort of bouncing around when George Washington Yates, um, who despite that upper crust name was actually a writer of movie serials. Okay. Uh, got the idea to, um, make this film. Uh, he got his start doing movie serials thanks to being the nephew of Republic Pictures boss Herbert Yates. So, you know, Nepo baby, as the kids on <laughs> Twitter's now say, um, Yates's best known serial is probably the 1938 Lone Ranger serial. But with the death of serials due to television by the mid 50s, you know, he had moved into feature films, right? In addition to them, uh, he would go on to write other 1950s sci-fi projects like Conquest of Space, It Came From Beneath the Sea, Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, The Amazing Colossal Man, Attack of the Puppet People, Earth vs. the Spider, The Flame Barrier, Frankenstein 1970, Space Master X7, War of the Colossal Beast, Tormented, and the script for the U.S. version of King Kong vs. Godzilla. Okay. So this is a guy who's got some B-movie bona fides, I guess you and could say. And we've seen his work before. Yeah. So. Um, Yates's story idea was then developed into a screenplay by this guy, um, Ted Sherderman. And Ted was kind of the main person driving this project forward. Um, he was someone who worked in the production department at Warner Brothers. And he was like really into this idea and so he got a guy, Russell Hughes, to turn the treatment into a screenplay. Uh, Hughes then died 20 days into working on the script. Like, mysteriously? No, just like, you know, just okay. he died. And so uh, Sherderman actually ended up finishing the script himself. Okay. Um, and very much it was like Sherderman trying to convince the bosses that this was an idea they should go for. At this point um, in 1954, the major studios hadn't yet written off sci-fi as like a genre for the cheap, you know, Roger Corman's of the world uh, to make for the drive-ins. Eventually, like that's what happened. Like the studios decided that to do science fiction really well, you had to spend a ton of money on special effects, you know, movies like This Island Earth and Forbidden Planet. And the B-movie guys were showing that you made just as much in box office doing it cheaply and shittily that you would make doing a great job. And none of the major studios wanted to make cheap-looking, shitty movies, so they just decided not to bother with the genre, essentially. Mm. Um, but that hadn't happened yet at this point. Um, Sci-fi movies are still new and exciting. Them went into production like as an A-picture, uh, essentially, under producer David Weisbart, who was the youngest producer at the studio. Um, he would go on to produce Rebel Without a Cause there the following year. Um, he was 39, to give you an idea of what the youngest producer at the studio means in yeah. 1954. So as I mentioned, uh, Sherderman had to work really hard to convince Warner Brothers to back the project. Uh, he had concept art done. They shot test footage of the mechanical giant ants that the props department came up with. And Jack Warner just didn't think it was the kind of movie that Warner Brothers should be making. 
So what he did was he offered to sell it to 20th Century Fox. He was like, you know, our guys here developed this idea. We don't really want to use it. Can I make some money off of you doing it? And what happened was when Warner saw how much Fox was willing to pay for the idea, they rescinded the offer and changed course <laughs> and went ahead with making the movie themselves. They finally saw the value. Right, exactly. The film's director, Gordon Douglas, got his start as a teenager at the Hal Roach Studios, rising up from assistant to the director to assistant director to director of the Our Gang shorts. Um, his Our Gang shorts from the 1930s are the ones that are like most iconically remembered because they were the ones that were later packaged for TV syndication as the Little Rascals. Okay. After Our Gang, Douglas transitioned to doing feature film comedies at RKO and Columbia, movies like Zombies on Broadway. And then he moved over to Warner Brothers in 1950, and he kind of spread out from comedy at that point and became very much like a jack-of-all-trades director. He just directed all kinds of genres, all kinds of pictures. Later in life, an interviewer asked him about like his very prodigious output as a director and the fact that he seemed to kind of do everything. And Douglas said, yeah, I had a lot of mouths to feed in my family, and it was very rare that I found a story that I actually was interested in. And so, you know, if he had just only done the stories he was interested in, he wouldn't have worked often enough. Yeah. When Douglas saw the screenplay, um, his first thought was like, oh, this is a comedy. Like, oh, no, oh, we'll get, you know, some comedians in like we'll get Bob Hope and Bing Crosby in to play these main characters. And then it was kind of explained to him like, no, 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 no. This needs to be done as like a serious thriller. Like this is a mystery story this is a detective story this is a war story you know you need to do it in that style and once that was made clear he was like oh okay cool because he could kind of do everything um in the 1960s he would go from warner brothers to 20th century fox he would do comedies at fox including like elvis movies and um the spy spoof in like flint with james coburn but he also still did like serious movies. Um, he did three films noir for Fox in the late 1960s, all starring Frank Sinatra, Tony Rome, Lady in Cement, and The Detective. So, uh, you know, Douglas was a jack of all trades. Um, he passed away in 1993. And what you see with the production of them is um, this uncertainty on the part of the studio of how much they wanted to commit. Yeah. Where, you know, okay, we're going to give you a budget, big budget. You're going to make these mechanical ants. We're going for it. We're doing it. But, you know, then the director we're going to give you isn't like a top, top guy. He's kind of one of our journeymen, like takes any job directors. And that sort of on the fence attitude uh, continued well into production. The film was originally planned to be shot in 3D and in color. Uh, this is at sort of the tail end of the first 3D boom. So they did 3D color test footage of the giant mechanical ants. And those ants were painted. Um, the carapaces were painted this like iridescent green purple. Okay. And then the eyes were painted kind of this iridescent um, red blue. And so the idea was, as you moved the prop around, 
the shifting color would make it look like the eyes were moving when mm. they were actually just stationary. And so they did these 3D color tests. The results of those tests was the decision to drop color <laughs> because they were just considered to be like a little too lurid, like a little too intense. Uh, the colors so it wasn't were... like, oh God, this is this looks hilarious. It was a, this is too much. Yeah, it was kind of like, oh, that's a little garish in color, mm. right? Like this is a little too much. Um, so they didn't shoot in color, um, but they still shot the film in 3D. And then after the film was shot, the decision was made not to actually print and distribute in 3D. For one thing, by the time the movie was done, the 3D fad was on its way out. But it was also just another example of the studio kind of like at different stages in the production deciding to cut costs. Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, we don't need to print this in 3D, which costs twice as much as 2D. So the movie that was planned to be in 3D in color is actually flat and black and white. The only sort of thing that hints at the original intention is the film's title sequence, which features the title in red and blue letters zooming right out at the audience. Um, but that's the only color thing in the movie. In order to achieve that effect, they had to splice in a bit of like color film into each print. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's, again, that's still an expense though, right? So it's this very like hot, cold thing of like, well, we'll do this special thing, but not this special thing. Yeah. Right? Three giant mechanical ants were made for the movie, uh, two full bodies, and then one half body that could be mounted on a boom for like greater mobility in close-ups. Okay. So insects, ants specifically, like don't make noise. No. They don't have voices. They don't have like an ability to project sound. But you know, in a movie, the monster's got to make some sort of noise, right? So in this film, the ants are given a very distinctive kind of like high pitched kind of tweeting noise. Oh no, I forgot about that. That killed me the first time we watched that. Mm. It's just at the right frequency that it hurts my ears so much. So what they used for that was bird voiced tree frogs, which are this type of tree frog that have a mating call that instead of sounding like frog croaks sounds like um bird song okay yeah and they sort of did a sound mix of that and a few other bird calls basically <laughs> so don't watch them when you're down in the rainforest because all of the the frogs near you are going to be like oh shit it's mating time great yeah exactly <laughs> uh the film stars james whitmore who was a highly regarded character actor on stage in tv on film, um, he would go on to play Admiral Halsey, uh, the commander of the USS Enterprise in Tora 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 in 1971. That's kind of the thing I know him best for, but he's definitely like a that guy um, if you're a fan of like a certain era of film. He was born in 1921 and he began studying acting at, while at Yale after an injury put an end to his football career. Mm. During World War II, he served in the Marines, and then after the war, he studied at the Actors Studio in New York. He won a contract at MGM after appearing on Broadway, and he earned an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor for the movie Battleground in 1949. 
So by the mid fifties, he was kind of a go-to respected leading man-ish actor who also was very good at like putting on a military persona, but isn't like a huge big name star. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, middle of the road kind of actor pick here because we're spending money on the special effects really. Um, But yeah, Whitmore had a long career. He would, you know, end up teaching acting for a long time. Uh, So yeah, well-respected guy. He's a little shorter than average. Um, so there uh, are, a short king. Yeah. So he's standing on a box in some of his scenes in this movie to give him a bit more height. The original Tom Cruise, Oof. would you say? Yeah. I mean, Humphrey Bogart is the original Tom Cruise, really. <laughs> um, but the second build actor in the credits, uh, Edmund Gwen, is probably best remembered today for playing Chris Kringle in the original 1947 version of Miracle on 34th Street. And he was an actor who Sherderman had to push to get into the movie because Warners thought he was too old, even though his role is as the like old scientist who gives all the exposition and who has like an adult daughter who is also a scientist. Mm-hmm. So like Sherderman's point of view was like, no, he needs to be old enough to like believably also have like a PhD daughter. Right. But yeah, Edmund Gwen was very old at the time. He was born in 1877. Holy. In uh, London, England. And he got his start as a theater actor in 1895, uh, appearing in his first film in 1916. Um, And he moved to America in 1940 after his London home was destroyed by German bombing which also destroyed his large collection of Sir Henry Irving memorabilia. We've seen him before. He played Dr. Beaumont in The Walking Dead in 1936, who's the sort of kindly doctor who accidentally creates an affront to God in that movie. (laughs) Um, He also plays Mr. Bennett in the 1940 version of Pride and Prejudice, and he did four films with Alfred Hitchcock, The Skin Game in 1931, Waltzes from Vienna in 1934, Foreign Correspondent in 1940, and The Trouble with Harry in 1955. And he would pass away in 1959 at the age of 81. Yeah, I think for a man in his 70s, it's reasonable to think that he would have a daughter with a PhD. Yeah, yeah. Then there's another member of the cast, kind of the secondary lead, um, who we have kind of seen before on Scream Scene, but not really. Uh, And that is James Arness. Ah, James, yes. So James Arness was born in Minneapolis in 1923, and he fought at the Battle of Anzio in World War II. After the war, he hitchhiked to Hollywood, determined to work in the movies. Where we've seen him before is he had sort of the um, the ignoble duty of playing the alien in The Thing from Another World, the the vegetable monster. Yes. And so that's why I say we we kind of see him, because he's under like a lot of makeup there and he's not really like if it's not under makeup it's under fire right (laughs) um but his greatest fame as an actor would actually come on television now walt disney was looking for someone to play davy crockett on tv because disney wanted to do this davy crockett tv show and so he went to see them to look at Arness's performance because Jack Arness had been recommended to Disney to play Davy Crockett. And instead, Disney was more impressed 
by the performance of Fess Parker, uh, who plays an inmate in a mental ward uh, in this movie. And so Parker would win the role of Davy Crockett in the smash hit TV show of 1955. Um, And he would later play the very similar role of Daniel Boone on TV from 1964 to 1970. But um, Arness, meanwhile, caught the eye of someone else, which was John Wayne, who recommended Arness to the producers of the Gunsmoke TV adaptation of the popular radio show uh, for Arnest to play the lead role of Marshall Matt Dillon. And the producers agreed with John Wayne uh, and Arnest would star in Gunsmoke from 1955 to 1975. And he passed away in 2011. Wow. There's a number of other sort of recognizable actors in small roles uh, throughout this movie. Um, You know, guy who picks up phone kind of roles um ann doran is in this uh dick york who would later be on bewitched is in this and in uh one scene as kind of like a guy who picks up a phone uh there is a very young leonard nimoy ah i remember that yeah so them was released on june 16th 1954 and it earned 2.2 million dollars at the box office it was one of warner brothers highest grossing pictures of the year it even received good reviews from critics at like the new york times variety the new yorker sci-fi movies did not get good reviews in 1954 um but yeah this movie got great reviews uh they praised it as being this like well-paced sci-fi thriller It was nominated for an Oscar for its special effects. It lost to Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And today, Them is considered one of the classics of 1950s sci-fi. Despite all this, Jack Warner's dislike of the movie lasted until the very end. And after it came out and was a big hit, he declared that henceforth, anyone who wanted to make any more giant bug movies could go work at Republic. And boy, did they, because it started <laughs> off this whole subgenre. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's tons of these giant insect movies. And, you know, I think it's fair that a lot of people, because it's a monster movie and because it's sci-fi, they lump it in with, like, the sci-fi horror movies of mm-hmm. the 1950s. I think also because it has that, like... Uh, red scare element to it and you know the first little bit of the movie is very much like a horror movie but then it changes and i don't think it's horror um and we're going to talk more about that you know after the break why we why we think that i do want to point out that that the fact that ben doesn't consider this a horror movie is a big deal because you are terrified of ants i mean I hate ants. Is that not the same thing? <laughs> um, I just feel that like, so ants for me are kind of like, I, I'm not afraid of ants. Like it's not like with you and spiders. Like if I see an ant, I'm not going to go like, ah, and have to run away. It's not like me and moths. Um, it's more that I'm kind of in agreement with um, Ted Sherdeman here in that, like, you know, if there's a species on this planet that can like, go head to head with man it's ants <laughs> um like ants are are, are the threat 
Um, okay. But like, because the thing is, is like ants are assholes. Like ants are malicious. Like ants, you know how people like feel that way about like hornets or, or, or wasps? Yeah. Like ants have like slaves. Ants like colonize and conquer other races of ants. Ants like do all kinds of like horrific shit. Yes. But counterpoint, that one ant in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids helps the kids get away from a scorpion, Ben. Yeah, and there's that, like, ant in Ant-Man who gets a name and he rides around. I don't remember the ant's name now, but the point is, is that <laughs> ants are the are the fascists of the uh, insect world. Oh, my goodness. Now, uh, <laughs> you can watch them on iTunes, Google Play, Microsoft, YouTube, Amazon, and it's also on DVD and Blu-ray from Warner Home Entertainment. Yeah, what's always nice with these big hit movies is they are easy to find. Yes. Well, folks, if you would like to watch along, Ben has shared where you can find it. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Them from 1954, directed by Gordon Douglas. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching them from 1954 directed by gordon douglas sarah i mean we've seen the movie before but yeah was it still good yes um and i think i enjoyed it better this time around i think this is my second time seeing yeah. it uh because i could prepare my ears for the ant sounds mm -hmm. um so they didn't bother me as much this time but yeah it's it's a good movie uh, I know you've seen this movie a few more times than me, but um, what did you think of this? Yeah, I mean, the thing that strikes me a lot about them is um, how well-paced it is. Yeah. Yeah. Despite it taking place over a few months. <laughs> yeah, but it's like really good at leading you from A to B to C. Yeah. You can always follow like what's happening and why we are like in this new place doing this new thing now. Yeah. I think it is a great movie to watch if you are interested in how story structure can work. Yeah. Speaking of story structure, let me tell the folks at home what this movie is about. Mm -hmm. It's about ants. 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 Ant-Man. Yes. When we open, we are in New Mexico, and we see a little girl wandering the desert in shock. Now, Sergeant Ben Peterson and his partner pick her up and figure out that she came from a trailer um, a few miles away from here, where they go there, and it's completely torn apart. At this campsite, they do find a very strange footprint, so they take a mold of it. And then Ben and his partner head to the local general store, which turns out to also be like ripped apart uh, and they find the owner dead uh, with a broken neck, ribs crushed and just a shit ton of formic acid in him. 
Now, Ben's partner stays behind at the general store while Ben heads to the hospital to see if the girl has begun talking yet, and his partner is attacked and then is missing for most of the movie. The FBI gets involved because um, that little girl's dad was an FBI agent, and we get to meet Special Agent Robert Graham. Now, he comes in and he decides to send the footprint in to his head office, and they in turn send in Department of Agriculture myrmecologists Dr. Harold Medford and his daughter Pat. And Harold and Pat confirm the worst. Uh, giant ants all over the desert. Um, we get to fully confirm this theory when Pat is attacked at the trailer site. Working all together, they find the nest where they see uh, skeletons of some of the missing persons being deposited outside, including Ben's uh, former partner. Using chemical warfare of phosphorus and cyanide gas, they destroy the nest, uh, but not before two queens and their escorts escaped. Uh, and let me hit pause here real quick, um, because you might be going like, but it doesn't an ant nest only have one queen? So a nest will have one queen that, you know, poops out all the eggs. Um, but when building more nests, um, there are queens that are birthed, hatched. hatched, hatched is the word. Um, they have wings and then they have male ants with them that also have wings so they can travel away from this nest to establish other nests. Yeah. In the movie, they even say like, really, we should call these types of ants princesses until like they've set a set up their nest and then they're queens yeah um so the problem here is that we have two potential queens heading across the states uh to establish two new nests now our intrepid heroes head to washington dc to begin tracking where these queens go they discover one uh lands on a ship begins the nest there and uh to deal with it they sink the ship mm-hmm then they discover that the other one has landed in L.A. and specifically the uh, L.A. River channel and sewer uh, of Greece fame. Yeah, it's the, <laughs> the, the tunnels under L.A. In the original script, I just wanted to point out, uh, this originally happened in the New York subway system rather oh. than the L.A. water tunnels. But the New York Transit Authority was not happy about this like even if they were using sets to represent the subway the new york transit authority was like we do not want people thinking there are giant ants in we here. already have to deal with people thinking there are alligators yeah. down here giant rats yeah. no way we're doing giant ants yeah so they changed it to <laughs> uh to la which is you know closer to home for the production and uh still like works very well because la has these big tunnels under the whole city now, part of how they discover that they that these ants are in the tunnel system is uh, two boys have gone missing. So with the military involved um, and martial law established in L.A., <laughs> uh, they start going and making their way through the tunnels. Ben discovers where the boys are. He goes in and rescues them. But unfortunately, he dies in the process. <sighs> Rob with the military backing him, head in, they identify the eggs and that there have been two new queens hatched, but luckily they are still here in the nest. And um, with confirmation from our scientists that, yep, we're good to just burn them up, uh, they do so. And this threat is vanquished. 
But as the film ends, Robert asks the doctors, but what about all those other atomic bombs? These ants only mutated because of that first one. Uh, And we are left with that existential question over our heads. I know that seems like I sped through it. Um, Is there anything, Ben, that you want to make sure is emphasized that I might have glossed over? I don't think so. Like, um, there's obviously like a lot more going on, but, um, you know, watch the movie. I just, I feel like the movie does a really, really good job of propelling you. Yeah. It has a structure that I typically think of as the Star Wars structure, Mm. specifically the first Star Wars movie, Mm -hmm. um, because the others don't do this, but. Because we're already in the story. Yeah. Um, but it's a structure I kind of wish modern blockbuster movies and TV shows would kind of go back to because it really helps get you into the world and the story a lot easier. And what that structure is, is starting with one character in like one situation. And then that leads you to the next thing. And that maybe introduces a new character and that leads you to the next thing. And that introduces a new character And so, you know, we never actually really in this movie get away from Ben's POV until he dies at the end. Um, But he meets Robert Graham and now we have this secondary protagonist and then the Medfords come in and we have these like two other protagonists to like round out the cast and we just kind of go along and it's similar. I call it the Star Wars structure because in Star Wars we have the droids, they go down to Tatooine, they meet Luke, and then Luke meets Obi-Wan, and then Obi-Wan meets, you know, Han, and then we're on the Falcon, and then we go to the Death Star, and now we have Leia, and then we go back to the Rebel base, and then we fly up and destroy the Death Star. And it's very much this, like, linear trajectory, whereas when you do a movie that's, like, a fantasy or sci-fi film, and you try to, like, okay, here's a prologue with a bunch of characters who we'll never see again, and then now I'm going to give you four scenes in a row demonstrating each one of the main characters in like a typical day at the office. And then they're going to come together. And it just like, it can be a little overwhelming because you don't know who you're supposed to be focused on yet. um, And what's important. Whereas here, like, yes, Patricia, who is the female lead doesn't come into the movie for probably the first 20 minutes, but then it's like from there on, she always has something to do. You know what I mean? Cause she comes into the story when she's relevant. Exactly. Yeah. I think kind of to that point, the scope Mm. of the movie is pulled off very well. With our main team, we stay grounded in the events that are going on. We are able to follow what's going on, but we still have this wide scope of like, okay, first we are just in this small town in New Mexico. And then it's all of New Mexico as we search for the nest. And then it's all of like Southwestern states and kind of going out to the point where like, we're even considering, is this a global threat? Yeah. Did they go to Mexico and things? Yeah. And it's really good the way the movie starts small and and expands out like that. Mm -hmm. The other thing structurally about the movie that I think is, you know, something we should talk about because it's scream scene is how horror adjacent this movie is Ah. um, because it is a horror movie. I think until the Medfords show up. That's my point as well. It's horror uh, because it's like, Oh God, what happened to this little girl? Yeah. The traumatized Um, little girl is really effective. It's a really good, strong start. Um, Even the fact that like when it, when the movie 
literally opens. It's just title sequence, them in full color. It's very jarring. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, it's a, like a mystery of like who's killing these people, but it's, it's mysterious and tense enough that it is a horror. Yeah. Um, but when they're then, like going around the general store trying to look for clues and then he has to like leave the one cop behind and then it's like, oh no, what's coming to get him? Yeah, it's all shot very much like a horror picture. Even the sound design in mm. the general store in particular, like they enter and they aren't really sure what's happened. And then just as we need to consider things outside of the general store, like the back end of the store, we hear the radio come in. And the sound design is structured really, really interestingly, um, even to the point of when we happen to hear the ants and how it's um, balanced with the windstorm going on Mm -hmm, outside. mm -hmm. But you're absolutely right that it's horror until specifically Dr. Harold Medford shows up because his academic demeanor is meant to be a bit funny. It's meant to, if it's not funny in the sense of like, he he's way too much of an egghead. It's a very straightforward, like, oh, but you see ants build a nest. Yeah. Kind like, of a very straightforward, like, here's the answer. Yeah. And he's like portrayed. It, it's funny because it's the juxtaposition of these people who are freaking out because they don't know what's going on and someone who is keeping his head about him because he knows everything that's going on. Right. And it's that sort of, you know, thing where fear comes from the unknown. Yeah. I, I, I do appreciate how well Harold balances or rather the actor who plays mm-hmm. Harold balances Yes, I know everything, but I'm not a know-it-all. Yeah, and also, like, I'm not so wrapped up in, oh, ants are cool, that I don't recognize that, like, this is a threat. So, like, as an example, there are multiple times where they're about to, like, wipe out a nest, and um, Medford is like, oh, no, 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 you can't destroy the nest. And you're kind of thinking, I think, at first that it's going to be one of those movie scientist things of like, but think of what it could mean to science if we could capture them alive. But no, it's because we need to look at the eggs in the nest to see if any queens have hatched. If they haven't yet, then we're in time. And if they have, then like we need to go find another nest, right? And so he's never like forgetting the fact that his job is to prevent more of these things from existing, right? Which is really good because... So often the scientists in movies get portrayed as being, you know, moralless, basically. And like, yeah. And I think the case in point for why it's suddenly not horror once the Medfords show up, we're still in kind of a, a tense moment when the doctors are there and we're investigating and they aren't quite giving us answers yet. And then Patricia is attacked by an ant at the trailer site. And that's horrific. That's our first glimpse of the ant. And we start shooting, the guns aren't doing anything, and Dr. Medford is like, shoot the antennae. He's helpless without them. Yeah. Just shoot the antenna, you're fine. Yeah. Yes, there's still a giant ant, but the fact that he uses the phrase, he's helpless without them, is case in point, this is no longer a horror movie, it's a monster movie. Yes. And the tone of the movie from then on shifts into um, basically a procedural style it's um it's a sort of professionals solving problems style which i always really like and appreciate i'm always really into stories where we see people who are very good at their jobs doing their jobs it's the reason why police procedurals are 
popular or medical procedurals or legal or um, really, if you want to get down to it, like Star Trek The Next Generation is a procedural because it's just like, here's a problem. Now let's watch the highly skilled team attack the problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And I always really like that style. But yeah, we've moved out of horror because we aren't, you know, running in terror anymore. We've, you know, got someone on the team who knows what to do. And it's just a matter of like, can we get it done in time? And then when we get to the ending, you know, because in some ways you could argue, well, what what about Van Helsing in Dracula? Doesn't he serve the same role? But Van Helsing's still kind of guessing because Dracula is a supernatural creature. Yeah. Whereas like Medford knows what's up because like these are ants and he studied them and they have these like specific behaviors. But also, you know, you get the sense that in Dracula, it's really like shit is on the line until the last minute. And we're breathing like this huge sigh of relief um, once the problem has been dealt with. And so we're left with survivors, right? Which is a crucial element in horror for us. Whereas in them, it just feels like cleanup crew. Yeah. It's like, we know what to do. We just need to do it in time. And we've got the entire might of the U.S. military behind us to do it, right? These are not like helpless people in a small town who have no one to talk to. This is like they get generals involved and they've got guys, you know, soldiers with flamethrowers going into the nest and burninating everything. Burninating? Yeah. I don't think that's a word. So it stops being a horror movie and it's just like this monster movie of us versus... Them. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I think the effects are really fantastic in this movie, um, both in terms of the ants as well as... The fact that we are using the money we have to get real military vehicles, Mm. real equipment, a shit ton of people. Yeah, a lot of like minor actors all through the movie, which like we've gotten so used to like you and I, um, these very sparse movies where like people stand around in like a, you know, nuclear research facility and there's like three people who work there. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, the fact that there's like all these ancillary talking characters who had to be paid, it's like, Oh, right. This is what a pictures are like. (laughs) Um, Speaking of which also the acting is great. mm. I think praise is deserved all around, except for that one little boy. Uh, There's one little boy who's like actually terrified Mm. in the climax. And then the other one's just like standing there. And I think he was going for a shocked look, but it, it, doesn't work for me. So I think that James Whitmore brings a lot of personality to the character of Ben, who yes. I think on the page is nothing. Um, he's just the the kind of audience viewpoint guy doing his job. Yeah, he brings like such a feeling of pathos for being a cop who's thrown, like he's just a small town cop and now he has to deal with ants. I mean, he's state police, but okay, still. Well. I also, like, it does strain credulity that he gets to stay with our main team as we go to Washington, D.C. He got detailed. He got detailed to the FBI. Yeah, it strains belief, but I'm willing to go with it. But plus, also, the movie never gives you a moment to question it. Like, there's one moment where they start to be like, wait, why are you here? And it's because, like, everyone else on his police force, they don't know about the ants yet. So he, as being one of the people who was, like, 
firsthand witness Mm -hmm. has value here in Washington, D.C. You know, you bring something up, which is that this movie does a really good job of shutting down plot holes. There are a lot of instances in the movie where someone's like, well, wait a minute. If these giant ants have been here in the desert since the Trinity test, why has no one noticed them up till now? And the movie does a really good job of either giving you an answer that makes just enough sense that you can go on to the next scene and stop caring where it's like, you know, maybe if you really looked at the logistics of it, Oh, that's not a great explanation. But like in the moment it's enough to suspend your disbelief, which is all it needs to do. Or there's um, a hilarious moment where I forget what the question is, but someone asks Dr. Medford a question that could be something that like cinema sins would bring up as a plot hole. And Medford's like, ah, well I have a very good explanation for that. And then they like arrive at the nest and it's like, Oh, look over there. It's the nest. And then, we go on to the rest of the story, um, which is just a writer telling you like, yeah. Don't yeah, worry about it. I, yeah, but like, I know. I'm not an idiot. I know yeah. that that's a thing, but yeah, don't worry about it. Yeah, they are definitely not an idiot. This script is very good. Yeah, the script does a really smart job of letting its characters sound like professionals in their field while still giving room to explain the jargon without making it feel like it's talking down to us. Um, The fact that, you know, we've got two scientists and then two cops means that the scientists can explain things to the cops. um, And we kind of avoid that situation where, like, a scientist has to explain something to another scientist who should know what that is. Um, But also it just never comes across as condescending. Mm -hmm. They never try to, like, reduce things to, like, just, like, real baby metaphors. You know, it's it's good. It's it's really good. Obviously, Sherdeman, I think, did his research, you know, on ants, on police procedure, on a bunch of different things to make the movie sound as good as it does. Yes, with an asterisk of at one point, they consider flooding the first nest. Mm. They can't because it's a desert. But the phrasing is like ants can't cross water or something like that. And in fact, ants can survive underwater for about two weeks. Hmm. Interesting. Everything else sounds academically correct, but that's just something I happen to know because I looked it up once when I was looking at how to deal with a nest in the yard. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Okay. You can pour boiling water on them. Yes. But uh, not just like drowning them. Like they'll be fine. Right. One thing that's very interesting about this movie is, especially in the context of radioactive fallout and Mm. all of that context setting I gave, is how much that this movie is like, yeah, just trust the authority figures Mm -hmm. in your life. Um, It's totally reasonable that they aren't saying anything about the ants to the world, to um, the community, to LA until they actually have to tell them and even then they first implement martial law and then say yeah it's because there's ants yeah it's this is very much like a 1950s trust your authority figures movie right like our heroes are you know a state police officer an fbi agent and two scientists from the department of agriculture and then they kind of get joined by like an army general as well the movie's take on the u.s government is interesting because these guys aren't portrayed entirely as Boy Scouts. Mm -hmm. They're not doing the morally right thing in every possible situation. But like, like for example, um, when they're trying to figure out where the other nests are, they're like kind of 
um, on the lookout for like reports that people might give of like flying saucers or other strange phenomena that could be the ants. And there's this pilot who got buzzed basically by the queen and her entourage. Her entourage? Yes. <laughs> and because of, you know, the fact that he was like, well, I ran into some flying ants. They stick him in the mental ward of this hospital and our heroes go to visit him. And it's very clear that like, no, he saw something real. And so he really shouldn't be in here. And our heroes leave his room and come up to a doctor and they're like, yeah, you need to keep this guy in here indefinitely. And not indefinitely. We'll call you when yes. he's well, here. That's what indefinitely means, right? Until further notice. Uh, okay, okay, okay. Um, not infinitely, um, but just <laughs> indefinitely. And the doctor's like, oh, well actually I thought he was good enough to be released like in a couple days. And they're like, no, 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 no. And it's because they don't call us. We'll call you. Yeah. It's because they don't want him getting out and giving this story to the wider press and panicking everyone. But I bring this up because while the characters do morally questionable things like that, the movie always presents them as being, you know, for the best interests of the public yeah. kind of stuff, right? Like this is a movie that, you know, takes that stance that, yeah, the government didn't tell those people in those towns about the fallout that would be poisoning their water. But like, they really couldn't because like, what if there were communist spies in that you know town and you know, we don't want Russia to get wind of what we're doing. So the town's going to get wind of the fallout. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, everything yeah. that they do is kind of presented as justifiable because you know, we need to just trust that these guys know what they're doing. That's kind of the, the message that the movie's giving you. Right. Yeah. And it's so, wild to me that that is the approach of this movie that is essentially about unknown effects of fallout from mm -hmm. tests that also in the context of this movie happened like 30 miles away from a town right right like it's it's very interesting to me to think about this movie in the context of like how the american public consciousness considers authority 20 years from now. Well, and, and also the amount of like compartmentalizing. Yeah. So the ending of the movie is very definitive. Like they burn all the ants, they kill all the ants and you know, you don't get anything of like, well, but what if there's a, an egg we missed somewhere? Donna, maybe there's something else out there. Right. We don't get that at all. Like Dr. Medford's like, Nope. We definitely killed all these ants. Uh, we're fine. And the ending instead has more of the like, what other horrors could the atomic age bring, right? Yeah. But the thing is, um, that's such an interesting, like I said, compartmentalizing of an attitude about the U.S. government. Because it's like, we're criticizing the atomic age for unleashing like horrors that we cannot be prepared for. And like, you know, was man really meant to know? And, and are we playing God? All of those kind of standard 50 sci-fi questions. And then on the other hand, it's like, but you know, the U S military can fucking lick anything. And if something bad happens, like we can depend on our government to save us. And the compartmentalizing that's happening there is that that horrible atomic age where we meddled in things we weren't meant to know, like, well, who did that? It, yes. It was the American government, like, like, you know, nobody else dropped bombs on another country. 
And, you know, eventually Russia had the bomb too, but like who had it first, who opened the door? Like, and you know, and textually in the movie, like these ants are coming from the Trinity test at White Sands, right? Like that's straight out said. So yeah, it's this really interesting kind of thing. And I feel like if this movie was made in the seventies or the eighties, right? Someone in this movie would be an asshole jackass who is either incompetent or corrupt or suspicious. And that's going to let me segue into the fact that this movie is undeniably a huge influence on aliens. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Even just like when they're going into the nest, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) Like it's not necessarily a big influence on the first movie. Um, No, I think... um, the fact that the first movie is horror and the second movie is action yes. is a great way to show how them is an influence on aliens. Yes, exactly. And like the whole thing of like, here's a bunch of soldiers and we're going to go into the nest and here's the queen and we got to make sure the eggs are all killed. And even the fact that they're using like flamethrowers and they're going through these tunnels. Um, it's, it's really obviously a huge influence on aliens, but in aliens, like, the comp we're going there with the assistance of the company that like owns the colony and employed all the workers. And they don't really give a shit about anyone who died because they actually just want like an alien egg to take home to study and like experiment on. And like the government that sent the like Marines out here, like most of the Marines just get fucking slaughtered um, and nobody gives a shit. And you know, it's down to, you know, tough bitch Ripley to like save the day yeah. Um, because all the authority figures she's been given and told to trust all fuck up. Yes. Uh, And also what's interesting there is um, the company is on the same standing as the government. Yeah. Perhaps even more so. Yeah. Like we know that there is a government because there's Marines, but like, the company is treated as like the ultimate authority, basically like the, yeah. the representative from the company. Um, oh, I can't remember his name right now. Burke. Yeah. Burke is like acts like he can order the soldiers around. Yeah. So that's, that's a really interesting um, thing to think about. Cause that movie's in like the 80s. Yeah. That's 86. Yeah. So tons of deregulation. Capitalism is Lord. Yeah. We're All in, that. we're in the Reagan years, yeah. right? Looping back to talking about the special effects. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, the big mechanical ants mm-hmm. are obviously fake, but there once was a time when obviously fake didn't take you out of the movie. I don't see them as um, fake so much as like comically endearing a <laughs> little bit. <laughs> you think they look kind of goofy? A little bit, but that allows me to like deal with it sure um also i want to know like you say that they only had like three three yeah but they set all of them on fire throughout multiple all times of the i know so that's something how, that i'm always wondering about I how many think, times did they have to rebuild yeah so i think probably they had to reskin them a lot of times and what they had you know was but the the armature the metal mm. and the electronics and the animatronics and whatever under all of that you know they only had three of that and that's really the expensive part. Okay. And the rest is just dressing. But like nothing about these ants is going to make you go, oh my God, are giant ants real? Like it's not going to fool you. But as a member of the audience, 
you know that giant ants aren't real. You know that they're fake. So I feel like the idea of like, oh, well, they look fake. It's like, yeah, but you knew that. Yeah. Um, all they need to be is convincing at doing what they are supposed to be doing, right? Looking good enough. And they definitely do that. Even when we see them fully interacting with people, like the ant that kills Ben, mm-hmm. like it's convincing that like he's getting crushed. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it, it's clear that they spent a lot of money on them and you, you kind of like, you still have to admire the craft and the dedication that like went into the creation and construction of these things, right? Mm-hmm. Which were then being operated by like a team of, I think it was like 20 guys off camera wow. operating one of these things. So yeah. Um, if you watch this and you're like, well, the ants look kind of dopey. It's like, I would rather have this to be honest than the Bert I Gordon method of doing things where you like would film a real ant and then superimpose it over like the footage of the people. I think I would prefer this as well Mm -hmm. Um, because I just also really appreciate the level of craft. Like, yes, that the Bert I Gordon one that has craft as well, but this is different. Well, and you get more believable interaction between the ants and the environment and the people, right? You mentioned that you really liked the cast. Yeah. So I was talking about like James Whitmore brings a lot of personality to Ben. I, I think you can see how well he's doing it because James Arness as Bob is kind of an empty suit. Well, listen, Robert is here to be the leading man. Mm-hmm. Um, the nice moments with him come because of Pat. Yeah. And because of Ben. Yeah. Because of like what the other actors are giving James. Yeah. Um, but I think James does like a fine job. He's not bad. Is no, what no, I'm he's saying. not bad. It's just that like I don't have a sense of who Robert is as like a character. Like he doesn't have a personality. Like his character traits are likes Ben, loves Pat. Is FBI. Is FBI. Yeah. Whereas like the way that James Whitmore plays Ben, it's like, oh, you're a Miles O'Brien. Like I get what your deal is. That is so accurate to who Ben is. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you get a really good sense of who Pat is from that actress's uh, portrayal. It's a really good performance of a female scientist in one of these movies where like, She's always a professional. She's always there to do her job. She's always useful. And yeah, there's like hints of a romance that might spring up between her and Robert, but she's never given like monologues oh, to have about some choose between love and science. Right. Yeah. Like, am I a scientist or am I a woman? And you know, the moment where her hair comes down and her glasses come off and like, they never do that, which is really tiresome in a lot of movies from this period. Um, But I do think, and you said this earlier, and I totally agree that Edmund Gwen, who played Harold Medford um, is the real MVP of this cast. He does a really good job. You can tell he has a lot of experience Mm -hmm. in doing acting in a variety of genres. Well, (laughs) the thing is, is like, he has to sell us 
on all the exposition. Yeah. Right. He has to give all that exposition in such a way that like we buy that this is serious and you know that like the character still needs to come off as kind of funny because he's like supposed to be this endearing old man but he has to come off as funny in a way where it doesn't make the exposition funny or sound ridiculous like he has to give all of that exposition in such a serious manner as to make us believe what we're seeing on the screen and i think he absolutely Mm -hmm. does that like the movie is really good at selling you on the goofy central premise. And, you know, part of that is also helped by the pacing, the way that the movie just goes A to B to C to D, you know, because we're always moving forward, there isn't time to be like, well, wait a minute. Right. Yeah. Well, folks, I hope you have enjoyed this episode on them. Uh, If you are interested in uh, a fun contrast, uh, go take a listen to our episode on Gojira um, and compare and contrast how them and Gojira tackle a uh, radioactive creature. Mm -hmm. I want to give a shout out to our patrons over at patreon.com slash scream scene podcast who chose this movie. Uh, The poll for April is up and if you would like to vote and have uh, a say in what movie we cover for next month's horror adjacent bonus episode, head on over to Patreon and uh, pledge at any level. We'll be back to our regularly scheduled programming next week uh, with the attack of the giant leeches. (laughs) Um, I'm presuming radioactive creatures as well. Probably. (laughs) All right. Well, We'll we'll find out. We'll find out. We'll see you then. Creatures of the night. Bye. Bye. Bye.